0: Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everybody this morning. I'm glad you're here. I think we have uh, dismissed our younger children to Children's Church. while they're heading out you want to get out your sermon outline that says responding to the work of Christ It is good to see everybody, I missed you, we're glad to be home, I understand you had two great sermons, uh, so I hope you won't be too disappointed today. The, uh, we're in John 12, verses 27 to 34, now your bulletin says through verse 43, but as I was preparing this, I got to verse 34 and realized I had enough, so the rest of it's going to have to come next week. Um, So we'll be going through verse 34 today. John 12, verses 27 to 34. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again we have come to your word and we ask that you would use it in our lives, that you would teach us, encourage us, convict us, that you would do what is necessary. Father, we know that your word is powerful and effective. We ask that it would be that way in each of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are familiar with the phrase, the Ides of March? Okay, about half. Pretty good. The Ides of March is the 15th of March. And uh, it is the day on which Julius Caesar was murdered on the steps of the Senate in Rome and beforehand he was told beware the ides of march and uh, he was julius caesar was born with an uh, you might say an unbridled ambition and an unsurpassed skill in oratory he was a great speaker he had managed to manipulate his way to the position of the consul of rome by 59 bc and after a year of service in rome he was sent to gaul what we know of as France today, and from there he managed to conquer not only the Germanic tribes but also the Celts. And his popularity grew as with each victory that he had. In fact, it grew to such an extent that the Senate, and particularly their leader, Pompey, were deeply alarmed, and they issued him an edict that he should disband his army lest he become an enemy of the state. It had become so powerful. And in January of 49 B.C., Caesar was staying in the northern Italian city of Ravenna, And he had a decision to make. Either he acquiesced, gave in to the Senate's command, or else he moved southward towards Rome to confront Pompey and to start the inevitable civil war. And there was a law at the time that no general should cross the river Rubicon. And no general should bring his army into the city of Rome and into Italy proper. And it was said that Caesar wavered a little when he came to the Rubicon River. <coughs> and then all of a sudden, he drew his sword and he marched into the Rubicon River and said, Alea yata est." the die is cast. And you've heard the phrase, crossing the Rubicon. This is where it comes from. And it means... No turning back. (coughs) And so Caesar marches into the city of Rome. He defeats it, and he becomes its dictator. Five years later, he's dead. Murdered, assassinated, betrayed by those closest to him. And you can go to Rome today and see the place in the Roman Forum where he was betrayed and assassinated. And his betrayers were among his closest friends and confidants. Why do I bring that up? Because Jesus is doing something very similar here. Because here, in going to Jerusalem, the die is firmly cast. There is no turning back. It is a point of no return. Time for him was running out. The inevitable battle is about to begin. We've come back to John chapter 12. So let's turn to our passage this morning. And I've titled this, Responding to the Work of Christ. Because that's what we're going to focus on today is the work of Christ. The first reason we find for responding to the work of Christ is for glorifying God. For glorifying God. says it's this very hour. It says in verse 27, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Eternal destinies are being worked out. Jesus has come to die. He's come to cast out Satan. He has come to draw sinners to himself. And he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. I thought what an amazing statement to come from the lips of Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement to come from the lips of the Son of God, that he is troubled. Because, you know, in just uh, two more chapters, and we're going to read in the beginning of John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. He tells the disciples, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. This is a famous passage. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And yet here in John 12, Jesus is troubled. His heart is troubled. How do we reconcile those two things? It's kind of hard to reconcile those. Let me say, first of all, what we see here is an insight into the human soul, the human psyche of Jesus. Jesus has a soul, a reasonable soul, as the Shorter Catechism defines it. In the 17th century, when the Shorter Catechism was written, soul and mind and psyche were, if not synonymous, certainly related And he's troubled in his soul, in his psyche, uh, in his innermost being, in the core of his personality as the incarnate Lord. He's troubled. One of the tragic figures of the early church is a man by the name of uh, Apollinarius. And Apollinarius was a stout defender of the deity of Christ. But in defending the deity of Christ, He managed at the same time to deny the humanity of Christ. He denied that Jesus had a human soul, a human psyche, a human mind. He said the body was merely inhabited by the divine, by the eternal word, that Jesus did not have what we would call a human psychology. And the church at Constantinople in 381 A.D. condemned this view as a heresy. Said, if Christ did not identify with man as man, not just with our bodily nature, but also with our psychological nature, if God doesn't identify uh, with us as we actually are, as we have been made, then we cannot be saved. And that was their argument against him. And so it's interesting, more than that, it's wonderful. Defined in the Gospels that Jesus experiences the range of human emotions. The prophet Isaiah uh, had prophesied that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And when we read this word that he is troubled here, the Greek actually would translate uh, possibly as shaken or agitated. I find that of immense help that Jesus the Son of God, the one who sits at God's right hand in glory, the one of whom we are thinking and talking about this morning, who rose again from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God. He was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. And he's troubled. Now the events that lay before him, he's entered Jerusalem, we're up to the last week of his life. And the events lay before him are now clearer in his mind than ever before. And it shakes him, it agitates him. He's troubled by it. You almost get a foretaste of the Garden of Gethsemane. If you may remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out in the travail of his soul, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And I know he goes on to say, not my will, but thy will. But there's a struggle here, and he came to resolution through the struggle. And there's an angel, there's a voice, at least, speaks from heaven, just as in the Garden of Gethsemane, strengthening him. And I want to speak to this tension, tension between what is said here about Jesus being troubled and what he'll say in John 14 in the upper room, let not your hearts be troubled. And I think there's a difference between the trouble of unbelief, which is, I think, what we're dealing with in John 14, and trouble comes uh, from knowing the way forward the difference between being troubled by uncertainty and being troubled by unbelief and being troubled because you know exactly what's coming. And it's not pretty and it's not easy. And that's what we're dealing with here. Jesus is struggling with what God's will is and it becomes more and more clear that the way forward for the Son of Man is going to cost him. He sees with a clear vision that he's going to die in Jerusalem. And he's troubled by it. Not for a moment did he sin, not for a moment did he flinch, not for a moment did he deny his resolve to be the son of man who must suffer on behalf of sinners, but he's still troubled by it. Now I think there's a natural uh, fear of pain and death, but it's more than that. I think Jesus is contemplating what it means to be abandoned by his Father in heaven. What it means for the Son of Man to truly identify with sinners. For a holy God to be made sin for us. What all that means. And he thinks about what it will mean when the unmitigated wrath of God is poured upon him. And he's troubled by it. The impending wrath, the darkness, a road down which he's never been before. Look again at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? It's a rhetorical question. And I think it's interesting he should utter those words. What shall I say? And I don't want to sentimentalize this, but we can ask this question pause here for a minute ask yourself have you ever been there when the unfolding providence of god seems so dark so horrible so frightful and not so much what you know but what you don't know where you've never experienced what you've never gone through and your soul is troubled and you're saying words like jesus is saying here what am i going to say what am i going to do have you ever been in that position have you ever sat in that chair And what lay before Jesus stripped him bare, in a manner of speaking. He's troubled by it. He is the Son of God, the Lord of glory, and his heart is troubled. And ultimately, it's troubled for what he has to do for you and for me. Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross for Jesus. He didn't sin. He has to die for sinners. That's us. And what shall I say? And the answer comes clear as soon as he says it. He's come for the purpose of glorifying the name of God. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. Jesus knew what he was facing now that his hour had come. He knew he had less than a week to live. He knew it would be filled with pain, with whippings, beating, spitting, mocking, with thorns in his uh, head and nails in his hands. Remember, Jesus... As he knew all this was fully human, he shared a nature like ours. His first reaction to the pain and agony that lay ahead of him is probably what yours and mine would be. He recalled an horror at the thought. The temptation to pray to his father to spare him is Huge. And we don't really know Jesus unless we realize how great the turmoil, how great the distress was, how great the agony of his soul was, how very real and powerful is the temptation to avoid this hour. John doesn't record Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane like the other gospel writers do. But yet here at the very beginning of Holy Week, the agony is there. But praise God, here at the beginning of Holy Week, just as Gethsemane, the outcome is the same. He says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus refuses to give in to the temptation. He refused to ask the Father to spare him from this hour. He went on through to face his hour for you and me as the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But supremely, according to our text, he did it for the glory of his Father. He prayed, Father, glorify your name. He knew that God would be glorified through his death, for his death would open the way for his Father to have mercy on sinners without denying his justice. You understand that? The glory of the Father demanded the death of Jesus. And in the final analysis, when push came to shove, Jesus loved his Father's glory more than his own life. And so he prayed, Father, glorify your name. And the Father confirms the decision of the Son. He shows his approval, verse 28, a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the voice signified to all who had ears to hear, especially in the crowd, that what lay ahead of Jesus was crucial business, for it would glorify God. And the cross, far from showing the Father abandoning the Son, in reality shows the Father glorifying himself through Jesus. Jesus. The father glorifies himself through the death of his son and the mercy he extends to sinners through it. The son is glorified through the cross because it reveals him as one who loves the glory of God more than his own life. And that's the first and primary reason for responding to the work of uh, Christ on the cross because it glorifies The Father. second reason we respond here uh, to the work of Christ is for exalting Christ, for exalting Christ. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now do you notice in verse 31, the repetition of the word now. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And Jesus is telling us there is something determinative happening right now. As I enter Jerusalem, as I come into this city, something is going to happen that it's going to change the world. It's for this event that he'd come. And that's why it's not the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, that's the pivotal point of Jesus' life and ministry. It is the cross that's the pivotal point. It's the cross and the events that follow, the burial, resurrection, ascension, and session at God's right hand. And there's something about those events, for which he had come. He says here in verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he's used those words before. You may remember all the way back in John chapter 3, which was a long time ago when we were in John 3. It's like last fall or something. He had a discussion with Nicodemus, and he reminded him there, as we read in our responsive reading at the beginning of our worship service. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's referring to the cross. He's referring to more than the cross. He's referring to the resurrection and the ascension. He's referring to those events that will begin with him being lifted up on the cross. And the point is that these events must now occur. He's resolute about this. He's determined about this. He won't let it go. He's come to fulfill his role as the servant of the Lord. And by entering Jerusalem, he begins a series of events that have been determined and planned from the very beginning. Two weeks ago, Rick Behrens talked about how Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because the Son of Man isn't coming as a political savior of Jerusalem. He's coming as the divine Messiah. And then last week, Rich Coffin talked about how Jesus is coming as the seed that must be cast to the ground and die. He's coming as the sin bearer. He's coming as a servant of the Lord who must be obedient to the will of God, even to the point of death. It is his hour that has come. He is the Son of Man who will be glorified. He is the grain of wheat that must fall to the ground and die in order to bear much fruit. And further confirmation of this link between Jesus' death as the grain of wheat and his glorification comes when Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's the measure of his triumph. That a consequence of his being lifted up, being crucified and buried and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of the Father is he will draw sinners to himself. And John goes on to explain, verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we know what he's talking about. Very clearly John identifies the lifting up of Jesus with his death. And in John's mind, the exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up of Jesus, is not just something that happens after his death. His lifting up is his death itself. So what to the world is Jesus' greatest weakness was in reality his greatest strength. What appeared to be his greatest shame was in reality his supreme glory. What appeared to be the ultimate degradation of being crucified, nailed to a cross, was in reality his ultimate exaltation. And so for Jesus, the statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and the statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to die, are essentially equivalent statements. For it's precisely through his death that Jesus is glorified, no other way. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time has come for him to die. And that identification leads us to ask the question, how does the death of Jesus glorify the Son of Man? How is he glorified? And the answer to that question is that the death of Jesus glorifies uh, the Son of Man because through the cross, the reality of who Jesus is, is openly manifest to all. It's made clear to all. It is through the cross, never apart from it, that we see the glory of Jesus revealed for us to worship and adore and cherish. And specifically, our passage teaches us two things about the glory of Jesus revealed on the cross. First, as we've already seen, he loves the glory of the Father more than his own life. You've got to get that. And second, we can see the Son of Man is glorified through the death of Jesus because the cross reveals Jesus as both judge and Savior. Look again at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. Judgment for this world, the casting out of Satan, the ruler of this world, and salvation for all men drawn to Jesus. All of these are in the cross of Christ. And through all of them, the Son of Man is glorified. Both mercy and wrath are attributes of the divine character of God. Salvation and judgment are both works of God. Paul writes in Romans 11, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Note then the kindness and severity of God. And nowhere is the kindness and severity of God, the mercy and wrath of God, his salvation and his judgment more evident than at the cross. The cross is judgment. The cross shows very clearly God's wrath against sin and his mercy to repentant sinners. The cross of Christ represents judgment to the world. The Greek word for judgment is krisis, where you get our word crisis. And the cross of Jesus Christ is the supreme crisis of the world, a supreme moment of decision. For it is at the cross that the true state of everyone's heart is laid bare. And the cross demands a response from you and from me, from every person. Will we be drawn to the cross and cherish its mercy? Or will we bristle at the humility and the repentance that's demanded by the cross? And will we add our voices to the throng shouting to crucify him? According to Jesus, this world, under the dominion of Satan, the ruler of this world, will inevitably inevitably condemn itself by its treatment of the Son of Man. The point's very simple. The cross of Christ is the judgment of the world, and Jesus, exalted and lifted up as the Son of Man on the cross, is the judge. He's already told us that back in John 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And then uh, John 5:27, God the Father has given God the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. The cross is judgment, but the cross also defeats Satan. There's more here. As the cross represents the judgment of the world, it represents the defeat of Satan. To the world, it would appear just the opposite. It would appear to be the hour of Satan's triumph, his greatest triumph. He's killing the Son of Man. But in the marvelous, uh, inscrutable wisdom of God, the reality is just the opposite. Satan was defeated Precisely in what appeared to be the moment of his greatest triumph. And Jesus triumphs precisely at the moment of what would appear to be his greatest defeat. Note the future tense of the word here. It says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. There's a process involved. The evil one has not been totally vanquished. That awaits the second coming. But the decisive blow has been dealt. Satan is on the run, a defeated ruler, defeated by the cross, by the Son of Man who was lifted up on the cross. And finally, the cross has the power to draw all people, to draw everyone to Christ. This Christ crucified judges the world. He casts out the rule of the world. But then there's more. We see there's the power of the cross to draw men and women to Jesus Christ for salvation. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. What is this drawing of Jesus? It's the same work of God that Jesus referred to in John 6, also in our responsive reading this morning. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. This drawing is the sovereign, initiating, transforming work of God whereby he freely changes the heart of a person who is dead in trespasses and sin to make him desire to come to Christ. To use a different image, the drawing of Jesus is the divine opening of the eyes of one's heart that were previously blind, so that the glory of Jesus on the cross becomes irresistible. And like iron to a magnet, he's drawn to embrace Christ in repentance and faith. And the point of our passage is not just Jesus talking about what's going to happen to him. It's this heart transformation, this opening of the eyes. The point of our passage is in the cross. Because the cross doesn't just hold out a hypothetical offer of salvation, the cross makes God's people come. The cross draws the elect irresistibly to the Savior precisely because it has the power to overcome every resistance within the hearts of God's people, all of God's people. And that's how we understand all in verse 32. Jesus isn't saying that he's going to draw every single person to himself. If so, then everybody would be saved. He's saying that on the cross, he will draw to himself all of God's people. Especially in this context, he's emphasizing that all of God's people will include Greeks as well as Jews. And we've seen that before, too, in John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So to sum it all up, this very complex passage, it's easy to read and skip over and get on to the good stuff. We see the death of Jesus glorifies the Son of Man because it reveals him for who he truly is. And Jesus is revealed through the cross to be the son of God who loves his father's glory more than his own life. Who has authority to judge this world. Who has power to cast out Satan. And who has the irresistible magnetism to draw all God's people to himself for salvation. This is the glory of the son of man that we are to cherish and this is the pathway to glory that we are to follow. The glorification of Jesus as the Son of Man demands that we as his disciples follow him to glory down that same Calvary road. <coughs> Immediately following Jesus' words about the necessity of the death of a grain of wheat in order to be fruitful, he wrote, last week Rich talked about these verses, John 12, 25, 26, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the language of discipleship. It's a language of self-denial. It's a language of eternal reward and glory. Jesus is not the only grain of wheat that must fall to the ground and die. And after Jesus has drawn us to himself and borne fruit in our lives, we must die to self in order to bear fruit. And Jesus talks about two kinds of fruit here, two kinds of rewards. Speaks of eternal life, verse 25, and speaks of being honored by the Father in verse 26. In each case, the pathway is the same. It's the path of self-denial. How do you gain eternal life according to verse 25? By hating your life in this world. How do you put yourself in a position to be honored by the Father? By serving Jesus, verse 26. And how do you serve Jesus? By following him so that as his servant you may be where he is. And where is Jesus as he speaks these words? He's on his way to the cross. Of course, the fact that the Messiah had to die to accomplish his mission is precisely what creates such confusion and such a scandal in the mind of the people. They had no problem with a king who would lead them in triumph against their enemies, but they're not looking for a redeemer who would die for the sins of the world. They no longer understood their need for such a Messiah. So in the historical context in which the Lord spoke these words, they amounted to shocking, completely unexpected words. And that's emphasized at the end of our passage. Verse 34, they say, we have heard uh, from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And they're asking, in effect, what in the world are you talking about? And from this point on, the doctrine of the cross and our salvation through Christ's death would continue to prove foolishness to the Gentiles. And a scandal to the Jews. The Apostle Paul would later put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's a clear choice to be made here. The cross of Christ is either folly or weakness or it is the power and wisdom of God bringing salvation to those who are called. Which is it? It's folly or weakness, or it's power and wisdom? You're about to come to the Lord's table. And when you do, Paul tells us, by your very action of coming down here and eating the bread and drinking the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you physically come forward this morning, you are making a statement that we preach Christ crucified. Think about that before you come. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.